Hello, welcome back to Sextras. Where we talk about sex and all the extras. I'm Honey. And I'm Maria. And today we have an amazing episode for you guys. We're really, really excited. We have journalist and author of the memoir Open, Rachel Krantz on, and she's talking all about open relationships as the name suggests. Yes, we just recorded the episode and she was so nice and told us like so much about her life Mm -hmm. it's so interesting yeah so definitely check out the book after you listen to this amazing episode yeah (laughs) and yeah she really touched on like all of the aspects that we talk about on the Mm. podcast like bisexuality bdsm communication like just so many things and and we'd really wanted to do an episode about like Mm non-monogamy and talk a little bit more about that so that was like super fun and yeah. i'm really glad that rachel came and talked to us yeah it was amazing but should we do a quick little little zone recap yeah. before we get into the episode yeah let's do it what zone are you in hun <sighs> quite white zone today okay. i've kind of gone out of my red zone you know <laughs> your first how are you starting your 23rd year oh my god it was honey's birthday guys yeah it was week. my birthday i'm feeling 22 <laughs> Yeah, you should have said that. That should have been your answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling happy, free, confused and lonely <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> so the yellow zone, the not purple zone, <laughs> the grey zone and black zone. <laughs> but in the best way. But in the best way. <laughs> no, but yeah, very like white vibes. I'm just like focusing on myself, you know, like self-care. Love it. Is the red, it's right out the window now, is it? Yeah, it's gone. The face is gone. <laughs> no, I haven't. It's just gone. Yeah, I mean you. You uh, yourself. I? No, I haven't even. <laughs> it's just it's just dwindled away. Yeah. God. What about you? Okay, that's good though. Good for you not being in the red zone no yeah. more. Uh, I'm in I'm in the yellow zone, you know, always, as always. But I actually had a I had a realization this week, guys, that I think I'm securely attached now. Oh my god. Don't shock me with this news. <laughs> no, no, I mean I I'm probably like not obviously not fully, not fully, not fully, but I have noticed, like, quite a few things that I'm like, wow. I was thinking, like, wow, is this what it's like? Is this just the life that I've been missing? Because, like, I never know when the last time my boyfriend texted me was. Like, that's wild. That's wild shit. I, like, don't think about him. I, like, keep forgetting that we're meant to call. Like, I just forget because I just haven't been thinking about it. It's like... Wow, this life is crazy. Wow. Yeah. Now I thought I'd hear this. Yeah. (laughs) Never speak too soon, but I genuinely like so many of my, you know, anxious, attached worries and like day to day living is just, just not a thing. It's just not. That's so good. Yeah, it's honestly crazy. Like, I won't be like, oh, he, like, forgot to call me. That means, like, he hates me and, like, doesn't miss me anymore and, like, never thinks about me and, like, wants to break up with me. Like, that doesn't happen. It's wild, yeah. Wow. So, extra yellow, you know. <laughs> a, a new, like, you know a you know how, like, everyone sees different colours, yeah. It's, like, <laughs> new shade unlocked. 50 shades of <laughs> yeah. yellow. <laughs> Literally. Um, but, yeah, that, that's me and my feelings. Cute. Um, and I'm excited for this episode, yeah, let's get into it with Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about what inspired your book before we jump into the conversation? Well, when I was in my first open relationship about a year and a half in, I was writing some articles about jealousy, trying to process it and understand it just as a reporter because I was struggling with it so much. And I was out about being in an open relationship, but not really writing about my personal experience with it. And an agent approached me and said, you should write a book about this. You know, like, I haven't seen something that's memoir and journalism. And I said, yeah, it's a good idea. I thought maybe in the future, but I'm literally sick to my stomach. Like, I'm not an expert. Everything I've read about this, it's by experts. And she was like, well, I'll just start writing things down. 
And I was already keeping a journal, so that idea kind of became a guiding light or coping mechanism of this idea that maybe one day I would defeat my jealousy and live to tell the tale. And as I was having all these different extreme, you know, intense romantic and sexual experiences and the central dynamic with my primary partner, Adam was getting increasingly unhealthy and I felt pressure to adapt to non-monogamy at the pace he seemed to demand. Um, And it eventually devolved into a lot of gaslighting where he was saying, you know, no, you're remembering things wrong or you're misinterpreting reality or all that kind of thing that I was like, okay, I guess I better have some sort of record of reality because apparently I'm not able to remember things correctly anymore. And so it became this sort of coping mechanism of this idea that maybe one day there could be a book was a reason to record my experiences as I was having them so that I felt some sort of sense of control in this situation where I felt very powerless or very much like I couldn't trust my own perception. Oh wow, so you wrote it like very much in real time. Well, I recorded it in real time. I didn't write it in real time, but I what I started doing was, you know, besides keeping a journal, recording over audio um like on my phone with people's consent, you know, not just interviews, but also arguments with Adam every therapy session instances I was being emotionally abused like just kind of all everything Um, sometimes you know BDSM role-playing scenes like there was I just ended up with so much tape more than I knew what to do with by the time I decided to write the book so yeah as I was living it I was trying to hold on to the experiences or was sort of taken with this idea that maybe it could be you know something like an accurate representation of what was happening. Mm. Even though like that's pretty much impossible because everything is just a snippet, right? Even if you record days and days of your life, that's not your life and that's not Mm. the people you're recording. But as a memoirist, you know, sitting down to write this book and a journalist, it was an incredible resource because I could reconstruct a lot of the dialogue in the book from audio transcripts verbatim it it, you know it wasn't just my memory it was really based on tape like a article would be yeah and kind of makes it impossible for anything to be refuted I guess (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that wait that's crazy did you kind of just decide to start recording these things or is this like a habit like you just record stuff that goes on in your life or did you kind of do it with an intention of maybe writing about it it is a habit I've had sometimes in the past you know I was working as a journalist since my since I was a teenager really and often working with first person journalism but then when I you know helped found bustle and and was features editor there and I was writing as well that was like part of that personal essay machine and there was a kind of formula of like I tried this and here's what happened and so we do a lot of those kind of like experiment articles so I was already kind of doing that a lot Um, but I was also really sick of the pace that was demanded and so it was like this way of again feeling like I had some sort of sense of power of like all these really interesting things are happening so I'm going to record them, but I'm I'm not going to write about it till I'm I'm ready, and that hopefully I'll own the copyright to it as opposed to with those articles in Bustle. Like I don't even have the right to have them taken down. I don't own what I wrote. So it was a sort of again like this attempt to have more power over my story. But yeah, this was more than ever before, and I I think because. You know, I think the first time I remember recording like that, I was a teenager or something, and my mom was yelling at me in very crazy, mean ways. And and I remember just being alone with it and feeling so guilty and so powerless and so manipulated. And I remember just kind of that was the first time I, I turned on my phone and was like, okay, it's this witness of like, I'm not, I'm not alone in 
being talked, mm-hmm. you know, there's someone seeing I'm being talked to in this way that's really harmful, even though I never, you know, did anything with it. So I think a similar impulse started to arise, especially with Adam, when I was increasingly being told all this really harmful stuff and also was, you know, this was all during Me Too. And so I was witnessing all these women coming forward with their stories. And even though I couldn't admit to myself yet that I was in that kind of situation, I did see how people discredited them for not having evidence, right? And how like with the Kavanaugh Supreme Court justice, um, his hearings in the United States that all these women came forward and accused him of sexual assault. And it wasn't enough evidence even that their therapists had records of them talking about it, you know, in their notes Mm. from decades ago. And so I was like, okay, I guess it's not enough to like have a therapist vouch for you. Like I need to have audio records. And so I think that's part of what's really cool and interesting about the book is like, yeah, most people don't have these kinds of detailed records of how emotional Mm. abuse unfolds so incrementally and subtly and how complex it is and like what gaslighting actually is in a way that then psychologists in the book comment on and, and dissect. So I think it's really cool, but it's also like very sad that I felt like I had to do this otherwise no one would ever believe me and I think what's been interesting seeing it come out is that it does afford me credibility but then there's some people who will say well she was recording her life so it must not be authentic she was probably Mm. just doing it for the material and that's less common a critique but I do think that's interesting and indicative of how women are put you know in a trap of like either you're you know, you don't record, but you tell your story after and your memory is unreliable or there's no evidence or you do keep those records like my case and have all this evidence and people say you're inauthentic. You are just doing it to get attention or tell a story. So you see how either way it's a way of silencing people. Yeah. Mm, it's ridiculous <laughs> okay well maybe let's backtrack a bit in terms of we haven't actually talked about polyamory on the podcast before so could you oh, okay. give a brief description of polyamory whether that's what it means to you now what it meant to you at the time and just overall yeah so polyamory is a type of non-monogamy where people believe in more than one love, right? It's kind of in the word. So the idea that you can love more than one person, have more than one emotional relationship. People practice in all kinds of different ways. They might have a primary secondary model of polyamory where it's kind of like one relationship takes precedent and might that might be the person you share the bulk of your time and resources with like an open marriage or something and then the other relationships are considered secondary if emotional but maybe it's it's not as big of a part of your life there's other people who practice something called relationship anarchy or non-hierarchical polyamory which is more like let's not have these predetermined levels each relationship is unique and different you need to negotiate it with everyone and it can be evolving And then polyamory falls under the larger umbrella of non-monogamy, and that would be like anything but monogamy, right? So it could be what we just talked about with multiple relationships, but it could also be things like swingers who might only go to parties together or do things as a couple. There might be people who only have the occasional threesome together. There might be people who have a don't ask, don't tell policy, or you're allowed to make out with other people, you know, people of all kinds of other non-monogamous arrangements that might not in practice look like anything different than monogamy from the unknowing person from for the outside wouldn't ever know. And we know in the U.S. that 22% of people have engaged in some form of consensual non-monogamy at some point, and that's people who admit to it. Um, and who are ascribing the label to it. But I think that one thing that's interesting to think about is that a lot of what we just call dating is 
often non-monogamy, it's just mm. maybe not consensual or talked about. So there's kind of that expectation of like, until we have that conversation, maybe you're, you know, seeing other people or dating other people. And then the expectation is just kind of like, you're going to choose a person and you're going to try to give it a shot. Mm. And so I think a lot of people have that plus cheating. They have practiced non-monogamy if they think about it. It's just maybe not been above board and talked about or consensual. And with Adam, was that as in you had a primary partner and he was your primary partner and you saw other people as well? Yeah, so when I met him, which is in, you know, the first chapter of the book is our second date before we kissed and um, he tells me that this is the way he believes in being in relationship and he very much framed it as like, if you were with me, you would still have the freedom to do whatever you want, but that he was really looking for a primary partner, someone to share his life with, kind of that traditional thing in a lot of ways. And so he was incredibly dominant and brilliant and compelling and and literally a professor studying the psychology of romantic and sexual desire. So I was like, wow, okay, he knows what he's talking about. Like he's literally studying how to maintain desire in a long-term relationship. And like, this is what he said. And I'd heard of non-monogamy and I, I thought, okay, well, serial monogamy hasn't been working for me. I was 27 and my pattern was I would kind of fall in love start to feel like bored and trapped, break up with the person, repeat. And I was just kind of hoping I would grow out of it. That that was kind of a, yeah, (laughs) relatable to a lot of people. (laughs) I I felt like that pressure to, you know, find my one and this bullshit that women are socialized with of like, hurry, you're running out of time. Like any time now you're going to, you know, get over the hill by the time you're like 32 or something and no one will want you anymore. And so I felt that pressure, even at 27, to like find this magic person. But I also didn't really have a genuine desire to only fall in love with one more person for the rest of my life or to never kiss anybody new again, never go on a first date again. So I think when he offered that, I could potentially have both. I thought, oh, okay, here's someone older and more experienced and why don't I try it? Um, But the idea really scared me. And so for the first year almost, he made me the offer where he was like, look, I'm very serious about you and committed to you. This is more like my philosophy. So how about I'll be monogamous until you allow otherwise? And so at first it was only us having experiences together. He revealed that he was, his kink was seeing me with other men and I was like okay cool (laughs) like that sounds fun Um, I didn't even like know that was a thing you know I think I'd heard about like threesomes with women and I knew that was a common fantasy but I had no idea Mm -hmm. such a common fantasy for men who sleep with women to see their partner with another man Um, Mm -hmm. and you know there's some men who like participating and touching the other man but in Adam's case it was more like what's called hot wifing where you just it's all the attention is focused on the woman and it's more of like a competition and then he would enjoy kind of winning afterwards and so for me it was like this very ego validating safe way to kind of explore non-monogamy at first to see the potential benefits but I wasn't dealing with jealousy or anything and then about a year in I started, I met a a waiter at like my local hangout spot and we started kind of making out on our own and I felt bad that it was only open on my side so I opened it up on both sides and that's when he started dating other people and I started really contending with jealousy. So when you say a year in, was this like a year of you guys sort of just having this kind of like threesome scenario or like this cuck holding (laughs) scenario kind of thing? So it was just that, and it wasn't anything beyond that, just to clarify, sorry. Right, until until I met this waiter, and then we would, mm. that was pretty casual, but, you know, we would hang out on our own. Mm. Okay. But I think pretty much within a, a month of that, I was like, okay, you know, it, you're free to do what you want, because this feels unfair. Um, yeah. Because mm. it wasn't something I was sharing with him anymore. Mm. And by that time, had you opened up your head more to sort of the idea of non-monogamy but as you said you were still that's when you really started dealing with jealousy 
Yeah. So was it kind of like in theory you had been like, okay, yeah, I'm into this. Like I see the benefits or whatever. And then when it kind of came to practice, you were like, oh shit, this is, this is real. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, he said that the idea was to ease me in to let me see the benefits for myself in total safety and that, that he thought that would be the best way for me to adapt. And he was probably right, you know, cause I got to experience all the benefits without any of the hard parts. Um, and I totally saw how for me, like it felt very natural to have experiences with other people, very exciting and enlivening and more authentic. It felt like it reaffirmed my commitment to him because it was like, wow, this person's so confident they're letting me do this. And what's more than that, they even like enjoy mm. it. But yeah, I think that I knew, oh God, even the idea of him being with other people makes me feel so jealous and nervous. I I guess as a journalist and a sort of emotional explorer and just someone who really wanted to give him that kind of freedom back because I knew he would require it eventually and I wanted to be with him and by this time felt I had very much bought into the narrative he'd established of like we were the best people for each other and like Mm -hmm. this was it I was like okay I want to do battle with this because I think it'll be interesting like I, I had never thought of myself as a a jealous person like I thought yeah sure I'm anxious or I have these other negative traits but jealousy was not something I was familiar with as a emotion and I could tell it was going to be very informative and humbling as a mm-hmm. um, emotional experience because it was the first time where I really couldn't make my physical reaction match up with kind of my beliefs or what I wanted it to for like very prolonged periods so you know I'd feel like at first when I was adapting like achy and my stomach was upset and just like fight or flight response and all this stuff and I'd be like oh my god they haven't even like had sex yet and I'm having this incredibly intense reaction and I would try to talk to myself and be like just calm the fuck down and then but my body was not cooperating and um it was very humbling and also like wow, I didn't know this much fear of abandonment exists in me, this much insecurity, all these things. So I kind of felt like if I can, you know, unlearn these things or no longer believe them or not let this control me, maybe I'll feel really powerful in the world because Mm -hmm. it's like, what could be more challenging to your ego than seeing your partner who you're deeply in love with, you know, go off with someone else for the whole day? Yeah. yeah it sounds like such a roller coaster of like a full 180 from being because I'm the same like I'm super avoidant I get freaked out by intimacy and I had a similar experience when I started seeing someone who was also seeing other people and I knew that I didn't want anything monogamous but it was just super intense those feelings of jealousy that I had never experienced before Mm. so yeah could you talk a bit about how because it sounds like quite a liberating experience like you're even though you're going through this process of negativity in a way you are kind of reaching a more liberated place and then how did that lead into the emotional abuse that you experienced Well, I think a lot of what was interesting is that these seemingly conflicting truths were constantly coexisting. So on the one hand, I was becoming more liberated. I was coming into my bisexuality. I was having all these kinds of different experiences and feeling just more free and like less shame over all my desires, discovering new kinks. And yeah, just feeling in some ways also in combating jealousy stronger um and and like just powerful in terms of wow I'm brave that I can sit with these difficult feelings over and over again and I keep surviving on the other hand I felt like in a perpetual state of anxiety a lot of the time I was like self medicating by a few years in with a lot of weed and over exercising and all these things to just feel okay or like I was escaping myself and and as there was more and more gaslighting and him kind of 
saying that my jealousy was illogical and therefore like not a valid emotion um, and was like an immature, unloving response to be trained out of me. There was kind of this paradigm of like, anytime I'm feeling jealousy, like this is just my problem to overcome rather than us being in a dynamic where it was like, okay, why are you feeling jealous right now? Is there anything I can do that would help you? Or like, can I like sit with you while you feel that? And I understand, you know? And and so that would further perpetuate my jealousy because it's very hard to feel safe or secure when someone's telling you, you shouldn't even be having this response right now or that feeling or you're, you're throwing a tantrum, you're being ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Or it's telling you like nothing's changed when it really feels like so many things have changed because now they have another girlfriend or all these other things. And so I think you see how both those things are true at the same time throughout the story. And they're not necessarily, it's not this binary of like either non-monogamy is like liberating and potentially feminist or it's like used by men to coerce women into, you know, having more sex or doing whatever they say. It's like sometimes it can be both those things are happening at once and are both true. And in in my case, they were. And I think that's because I was finding out that non-monogamy really is a good path for me. But the way I was practicing it with Adam, the person I was practicing it with, was not a healthy dynamic. And so that's why I was having that conflict was like, on the one hand, it was really good. On the other hand, it was really not. Yeah. I mean, it's confusing enough to be in any situation that's emotionally abusive, but having to separate those two things must have just been God. Mm -hmm. Mm. And the other thing that was very confusing was that it was also my first dom-sub relationship, but he did not admit that it was. So he kind of looked down on BDSM and said, you know, like those people are just pretending, which is like a real red flag, right, of potentially like an unhealthy situation of if someone is very obviously the dominant one in the dynamic but they view themselves as being outside power dynamics or power structures in relationship or don't want to talk about boundaries or rules and get annoyed if you bring it up that a lot of what the story is about is a sort of cautionary tale of that and that was very confusing because he was my first dom and he really was just like a natural dom and there were certain things that where he abused that power but also certain things that were just great and that I was finding out I really liked and you know I called him daddy and in bed and he called me his girl and I dressed the way he wanted and followed all his rules around the house and these are kinds of things that from the outside for people who don't have experience with BDSM it's like okay that's a controlling abusive relationship what the hell are you doing dressing his way or whatever but the thing is there can be really healthy dom sub dynamics where the sub really enjoys that Mm -hmm. but again the difference is that they even if it's like a 24 7 kind of role play or not even role play but dynamic that there has to be ways the sub can you know say stop like I'm not okay with this or the way the sub can say like you know what are our boundaries or rules around this? Here's what feels good for me. Like an acknowledgement of this is what's happening. But for us, he kind of was like, this is just us. So anytime I was upset, I felt like all this double isolation and shame because I knew what was happening was not good. And he would say, don't don't talk about it with your family or friends because you're going to incriminate them against me. You know, don't express your doubts. So that's like very red flag. But also he would say, you know, well, other people just don't understand non-monogamy. And implicit in that was also like other people aren't going to understand this dom-sub dynamic. And they think I'm just controlling you, but like really you like that. And it's true. I did parts of it I really did like and have carried forward into my current primary relationship where it's another conscious daddy-girl dynamic. But the difference is like we talk about it and there's like boundaries and safe words and rules and it's there's ways to like come out of it and and that's the lesson I learned that was really important with that yeah I'm interested how you 
have continued to explore open relationships because I experienced a really toxic situation with my first relationship and it was with a girl and I'm bisexual and now I really struggle to date girls <laughs> because mm, of that yeah. experience so yeah could you talk a bit about how you've moved from a toxic open relationship to having healthy open relationships yeah it's a great question I'm sorry you had that experience it's tough there's a lot of ways that you see me getting at towards the end of the book in terms of I went into an intense period of just introspection and, and celibacy once I came out of that and, and really established a meditation practice and other practices to sort of help me regain a sense of trust in my own mind and capabilities and judgment. So I think like having that foundation, first of all, was very important because it helped me feel more self-respect and clarity around what my boundaries even were in the first place. And that's something I also have different experts addressing in the book. You know, I'm sort of, it reads like, an, like a memoir, novelistic, page turning, but there's all these experts kind of contextualizing in the footnotes or in the text itself of like, I'm sort of the case study, right? So it's like, learn from my mistakes. So yeah, I have someone commenting on like, here's exactly how you might go about figuring out what your boundaries are, because that was like a very confusing thing for me throughout. But I found that besides learning that from her since uh, and thinking about it, that when I came out of that situation I f and started meditating and also just having had my boundaries so consistently violated, I felt like I had a much clearer sense than before of what they were. Like it was almost like a, a reflex of like, okay, like I'm way more sensitive now to if someone's trying to usurp my identity or, um, you know, tell me they're going to like rescue me from my life or, or is trying to change me. And in a way that makes me feel like I'm not fundamentally okay unless I'm a different way. So I think, yeah, just having that clear sense of, of boundaries and, and self-respect also helped attract more the kind of people who were healthier because I wasn't in the same place of I'm looking for someone to complete me and rescue me and deliver me to my adult life. I was much more like, I'm a really strong person who's very resilient and I know I'll take care of me no matter what. And so that's obviously going to be more attractive to people who aren't trying to change you, who are also securing themselves. So I think it just kind of creates a good cycle with that. And then I think it's also just recognizing that it has less to do with the relationship model itself or the gender or the kink and more to do with like, how are these people coming together and what is the power dynamic between them as people mm -hmm. and what are they triggering in each other? So, you know, I think that it became clear to me that in a different kind of dynamic where I felt much more secure and more of a sense of control and, um, and ability to, you know, press pause and more confidence that this person was not gonna leave me then my experience of non-monogamy was going to be extremely different because it was just like, yeah, you're still practicing non-monogamy, but you're starting from such a different point. So I guess my hope would be that for you, if you decide to explore being with women again, that it would be like, okay, less about the fact that this is another woman and so therefore it's going to be a certain way and more just like, what is this person's personality and do they treat me with respect? And, and what do I know? What have I learned from the past from all my relationships about red flags or things that are signs of incompatibility or, or ways that we might be triggering each other's shit in certain dynamics that I can watch out for? And one last thing I'll say about that is that I also have found it useful to think about the fact that you can really love someone and they can really love you. I think a lot of the times, like when we talk about emotional abuse, it's kind of, I felt, or abuse in general, like I felt even more trapped because I was like, but we really love each other. And I know he really loves me. He's just really not doing it in a good way sometimes, or he's just so convinced he's always right. And that if he could just convince me to 
do what he says, that I would be happy and he thinks this is the best way to love me. So I think it's first important to acknowledge that in those dynamics we're, that are unhealthy or toxic, we're locked in them for a reason and often the people really do love each other. But if you were to make a list of the, the symptoms and conditions that love is creating, what would it look like? So for me at that time, even though we really loved each other, it would look like I wasn't getting my period for like a year because I was so anxious. You know, I had lost a bunch of weight and was looking unhealthy because I was so anxious. I was smoking weed every day. All these things where it's like clearly, even though we really love each other, my body was like, this is not good. Yeah. Whereas, you know, now I'm like, okay, it doesn't, it often feels much steadier. And as someone who's been more in, coming from this situation of like, no, love's supposed to be super dramatic and intense and like high highs and low lows, that sometimes that can feel really foreign. But then I remind myself, yeah, but look at the symptoms of the this relationship or this love that since you've been in it, you've written a book, <laughs> like your health is so much better. You sleep well, you're not compulsively smoking weed. So clearly like that is creating conducive conditions. So I think that's another really helpful exercise to look at is what are the symptoms of your loving relationship? And if it's negative, that doesn't invalidate the fact that you're in love. It just might not be a good fit. Yeah, I think touching on the side of toxic relationships, whether it's in an open relationship or in a BDSM sub dynamic, yeah, you have to really recognize that. It's not necessarily the label of the relationship or the status of the relationship, but it's just the person. So, yeah, yeah, any good advice. <laughs> and it's hard because there's so few representations of these marginalized groups. So then they want to yeah. present their best foot forward because there's so many stigmas. But then the problem is then people uh, who are not in those lifestyles can't really relate to it because they're like, you're claiming you're perfect all the time or you never have bad relationships. And what's more than that is it further alienates people who are, you know, in non-monogamous relationships or BDSM relationships that have gone to an unhealthy place because they're like, I'm not allowed to talk about this. Or maybe it's just like, I'm the one weird freak who's not good at this or something. So I think it's really important to talk about the whole spectrum of what can happen because of course, like, just like queer relationships can be sometimes abusive or fantastic and monogamous relationships can be sometimes abusive or fantastic. Anytime you have people coming together in different personalities, you're going to have any range of outcomes. But yeah, people like to blame it on the label when it's or the model or the dynamic that it's stigmatized. So it's just easier to blame it on, on that rather than the people. Yeah, and when you're outside something, it can be super hard to understand where it's coming from. But then being inside it, it's like, <laughs> it just feels <laughs> so different and so much better. So could you tell us a bit about now your perspective of monogamous relationships and like what you think you've learned and what you look back on your past relationships and think oh my god I can't believe you know I ever thought that way or acted that way well I mean I think that monogamy is a totally valid and good choice for a lot of people yeah. you know it's a it's a trade-off of more security not having to deal with jealousy or maybe just you know not wanting to be spread thin in any way you you don't have enough time for it I totally get why people would choose monogamy and I think it can be beautiful when people do that deliberately I think the issue is when it becomes the standard default assumption and assume that the only way you can really love someone or build a long-term future with them is if you're monogamous and that that leaves a lot of people feeling like deadened inside or failures if they're having any trouble with long-term sexual desire for their partner and women especially I think there's increasing evidence from sex researchers that we might have more difficulty with lack of novelty or variety and there's this kind of old 
evolutionary narrative of, oh, men want to spread their seed while women want to like lock it down. But that evolutionary theory, while I'm sure there's some grains of, of truth to it, like many theories, was created by white men in the 1800s under a patriarchal capitalist system who were, you know, reflecting their own biases of like, oh, why is this that all the men are allowed to like do whatever they want and the women just stay home without any sexual desire and this kind of Victorian idea of what women's desires are and, you know, had that theory. Whereas when we look to the animal kingdom, there's female non-monogamy everywhere um, and it's on both sides for sure and that there's plenty of reasons to think sperm competition would also be a motivating factor for women who sleep with men from that perspective. But just in terms of more contemporary research, there was one British study I found really interesting. It was of 11,500 people of like a wide age range. And it found that women in relationships over a year old were less interested in sex um, and that the effect was more pronounced if they lived with their partner and that after 90 months, there was like this st- steep cliff of drop off of desire. <laughs> Whereas for men after that point, it actually held relatively steady. And I know just anecdotally, friends who are female, friends who are male, that despite the stereotype that men are more likely to cheat, they might just be less likely to get away with it or more likely to admit to it because now women have really caught up to that rate and just seem also anecdotally to be the ones who complain to me much more about feeling bored and restless and like they wish they had some novelty. Um, So yeah, I think that there's nothing abnormal about having difficulty with long-term monogamy and so that it should just be allowed to be a conversation in relationships and that there's a wide spectrum in between total monogamy you can't do anything with anyone else till you die versus polyamory no hierarchies and there's like five partners there's all this stuff you could do in between that might not be as threatening to if you want something a little more traditional but you just want some novelty or some more freedom um that I think it would be great to see you know more people feeling like they have the ability to explore Hmm. And like, if if you are someone that you think you you might be sort of interested in non monogamy, or you kind of want to explore it, do you have any advice or on like where to start? Both in just like actually start doing it, and also just in like unlearning all of this stuff that we've been talking about, like all the jealousy and all the like these ideas of possession and sort of like you can only love one person, and if and it's not possible, like. It's definitely a journey that uh, to some degree like everyone has to do internally on their you know do battle with on some level on their own in terms of unlearning but it's also really important to have help. So I would say you know read books. Mine has a ton of great resources in it of other non-monogamy books you could get an idea of which ones might be good. Um, Kathy Labriola who's my counselor who's in the book and also writes about non-monogamy she's excellent and she has a book called love and abundance that really addresses a lot of what you were just talking about of how do you unlearn those paradigms or examine them what is jealousy really all about she also has like a jealousy workbook I like hers a lot and I think it's very important to see if you can find a counselor it's tough I know but there's lists on lines of like kink friendly professionals or if you search non-monogamy friendly therapists you know sometimes they're only specialists and it can be harder to afford but there are also directories of people that might be covered by insurance and that way you have someone who's a little more experienced in these dynamics and isn't gonna like ascribe any problems in your life to the fact that you're non-monogamous or that you're kinky but they're gonna be looking at what are the relationships like themselves And then finally to find some sort of community is really important so that you don't end up more isolated um, or in a situation where, you know, you're not sure is this a person 
manipulating me or abusing their power and you have no one to ask about it. And, and that can give you a sense of what are kind of the ethical standards of these communities. How are they practicing in a way that's healthy? And you can find, you know, Facebook groups, local meetups, um, things like that. I think it's very important to have other people around you who can also say you're not crazy for trying this or for wanting something different than everything society is telling you you should want. Yeah. Could you speak a little more on sort of what helped you like specifically and your jealousy like from going to from dealing with like all this jealousy to sort of breaking that down and it becoming more manageable like did it like sort of click for you one day or something (laughs) or um (laughs) I think that I struggled throughout I did have kind of like an exposure therapy experience of where by the end of it, even though I was obviously still not doing well, things that would have bothered me a lot in the beginning were like nothing. So it was like where I started out, them even going on a first date and not even kissed, like made me sick to my stomach. By the end of the time, I was like, that's nothing. And I was, you know, he had another girlfriend. He would sometimes have people stay over when I was out of town. Things that would have felt like unimaginable to me before. But I think I never really did feel totally comfortable or good with any of it because, again, the reasons we talked about of my jealousy was kind of viewed as this character flaw mm-hmm. and and also that I didn't really feel that ultimately I could say no for more than a few weeks and not lose him. And I also found out in retrospect things I won't ruin that are revelations in the book, but there had been things he'd been hiding. So I think... You know, Kathy Labriola writes that jealousy is like a smoke alarm. It's there to alert you to the fact that there might be a fire, but it's up to you to check, like, is there actually a fire or do I just need to change the batteries? And so I think in that case, the jealousy was often trying to alert me that there was a fire, like that I was being lied to, that, you know, I was not being respected, that this was not a healthy dynamic. Whereas I think experiences now it tends to be much more fleeting and comfortable at least so far I'm always humble about that but because I just really trust I trust him in a way that I never really I realized I never really trusted the other partner and I feel safe in ways that I never felt safe so it's just I think that was the real difference was changing the dynamic into something where I felt like there was just a stronger foundation and and realizing how much of jealousy can often be about the fact that you just feel like you're going to lose that person at any moment anyway, or you just feel like you don't have any power in the dynamic, all of that is really, it's a symptom. Hmm. I feel like I never thought of it as that. <laughs> I'm always like, oh, yeah, as you were saying, I always think of it as like a problem with myself rather than no. with the situation. No. And I mean, that's also not to say that you can't be in a healthy relationship and experience intense jealousy in fact you definitely probably will you know even if, <laughs> when you're first adapting because it's just very intense and that's where I think having that help of a counselor reading lots of books having community will help you parse out okay do I just need to change the batteries aka learn to sit with this discomfort learn behaviors I can do to distract myself and and kind of negotiate a way that you can be okay more and more with with the anxiety or with the emotion and and sit with it so that it becomes less powerful yeah I think it's like how we were saying earlier it's more about the situation and like yeah the dynamic between two people rather than the label or the feeling because yeah as you said like if you feel jealousy in a relationship in which you trust the person and you like can communicate the feeling and it's approached with compassion and not just like dismissed and you can yeah you feel like you can feel your feelings and you can move forward and kind of like yeah okay this is just natural like this is gonna pass whereas if you're feeling jealousy in a very like insecure situation like it's more than jealousy it's like kind of deeper than that I feel but yeah yeah it's interesting situation like you have to really look at situation and dynamics rather than umbrelling things together as a whole and one distinction I really have found helpful is from the meditation teacher Tara Brock who's excellent she's a psychologist and she talks about real but not true 
and the ability to hold both those things at once. So with my jealousy, I could sometimes see or thought I could see how it was based in beliefs that were not true. You know, the belief that he was going to like leave me tomorrow or that I was un unlovable or, you know, all these other things. But because they weren't true, the problem was he was in, unable to acknowledge them as real. He felt like acknowledging mm. those feelings as real would just enable the untrue beliefs and kind of keep the cycle going. But what Kathy writes about in, in Love and Abundance is that like it's very important for a partner in that situation, even though they might find it unattractive or annoying that their partner's feeling jealous or they might feel really resistant because they don't want to be restricted and they're excited about someone new, to be able to hold space for their partner to have that feeling and not try to say, oh, nothing's changed um, or like you should see that I'm never going to leave you or whatever, but rather say like, okay, even if I don't think that your jealousy is based in truth with a capital T, it's real. It's an emotion you're having right now. Yeah. So I can sit with that with compassion and, and see what I can do to help you feel better, basically. And yeah, that's a whole different way of approaching it that I've just found is way more effective for me, I think for probably anyone, because it's, it's based yeah. in so much more compassion and mutual respect and communication yeah. is required much more for that. And those are things that are going to help any relationship monogamous or non-monogamous i feel like it really um helps making that separation of what's true and what's real because when you can communicate about it and talk about it then you and your mind can also be like okay yeah this is like real but it, it's not true like i'm talking to this person about it now like we we've come to the conclusion mm -hmm. like the yeah. realization and like it, it's even further than just like, you know, when you come to realizations on your own, when you're like, yes, I can rationally see that this isn't true. Yeah. When you kind of like voice that out loud and are able to say it, and then it's like reassured, then it's all like, okay, yeah. this is, you know, going away quicker and quicker, totally. like this negative feeling. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And just on this point of like communication, I know we've touched on it briefly, but I was wondering if there's anything else for even people who aren't interested in exploring polyamorous relationships, if there's anything you think that people can learn from polyamory if they're in like a monogamous relationship? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. I think to create spaces for regular check-ins and not wait for conflict is one thing I've noticed non-monogamous people sometimes tend to do more often or encourage more often because there's just like logistically you might need to like have regular check-ins about scheduling or about you know renegotiating an, an agreement or all these kinds of things and I think that monogamous people would also be wise to do that to have kind of regular check-ins that are in the calendar or something of like how are we doing are there any new fantasies you've been having is there anything that would make you feel safer in this relationship or situation? I think those are all good questions that maybe people in non-monogamous relationships are often talking about because they're being more open about their potential wide range of sexual desires or having new experiences. And also really, if it's going to work, having to be concerned about how do we navigate you having the right amount of freedom with my feeling safe. And that it's kind of this dance of like freedom and safety. And I think that really ideally any relationship would have an awareness around that dynamic because even if you're monogamous, there needs to be space for desire to function. People need to have lives that are not completely codependent, opportunities to have individual experiences, uh, their communities and friends. And I think that some people might be feeling trapped in a monogamous relationship, not because they actually want to be non-monogamous, but because they just feel kind of restricted by the fact that you're supposed to live with someone and, and see them every day. And maybe that's not actually right for everyone. Maybe some people would be better off living apart, but still monogamously. Or maybe mm -hmm. some couples would do better where one person travels more or basically where they have just more distance and desire built in or, or, you know, more opportunities of 
that they're not at home together all the time, the same time. So yeah, one other way that during quarantine, when that was obviously difficult, that, you know, my, my partner moved in. And even though we were, I was still non-monogamous in the sense of I was still talking to someone else and having an emotional relationship with someone else physically, we were monogamous and around each other every day because I was like, yeah, this is not like worth it to me to risk this before a vaccine. And I found like there's actually a lot to be gained from having this period of just kind of really deepening this commitment and, and how well we know each other. But I found that I was often feeling like restricted just by like not having any privacy anymore and not having the distance to miss him. And so if there was any conflict it was often like me kind of being passive aggressive or like distant in an attempt to get that personal space or just have that sense of like separate self again. And so we started this idea of every week, one day a week, we have like day of silence in the calendar. And it's like the expectation is that's our day to do our own thing. And even though we're still often home at the same time together and, and living together, we don't talk to each other that day. And in the beginning, we were much more strict with it of like, we didn't text each other. We would try to really just like pretend the other person was invisible. And it was so great because it was like, it was like having a fight without actually fighting of like get that sense of, of distance and like, you know, personal space again and silence. And then you get to like come back together and realize like you have new stuff to talk about and and maybe more feel more desire and, and like the makeup sex without the fighting because you, you know, got to look at them from afar and be like, oh, I wish I could talk to him right now, but I can't. So <laughs> I think there's lots of things like that that couples could work in to just have more sense of individuality and and space and creativity and playfulness of like you know just having conversations around like what would be fun and good and healthy for us like screw what other people think you know what is the way that we would be setting ourselves up for the best success and happiness and that sense of again the dance of freedom but also security mm. Yeah, just the idea of balance overall is what's screaming to me in every single <laughs> one of these points of like the permanence and the impermanence, the freedom and the security. Yeah, that's really good advice. Thank you. <laughs> I was a little bit curious about you'd mentioned a little bit about like discovering your bisexuality and stuff so I was just wondering whether you could kind of talk to us a little bit about that how that came about what happened what what's going on now <laughs> yeah thanks for asking well so I mean I had had those feelings since I was a kid but kind of pushed them down or was like oh you know it doesn't seem strong enough or it's probably if it if I was bisexual like it would have happened by now but I was always putting you know I was like an early adopter of online dating and when I was like 22 I was putting bisexual um but just not having a lot of luck with women because I was it was so much easier to let men come to me and I was kind of more into the dynamic of usually like being the one pursued and I didn't find that women were often pursuing me and were kind of writing me off as probably straight um and so I had a lot of imposter syndrome around it and and kind of some early experience but you know nothing serious so again I just sort of pushed it down and then when I got into this open relationship, I realized, oh, like here's an opportunity for me to explore this because I don't have to choose between, this is a whole new paradigm of like, it, it's not a matter of who would you rather be spending your whole life with, which just felt like so much pressure and was a way I just sort of invalidated my bisexuality because when I would imagine that forever person, it was almost always a man, but also a lot of that is probably because that's what I've been socialized to want and that's what like every single movie had showed me and every <laughs> book I'd read and you know everything so of course the fairy tale imagination was that and I found that in the parties we went to at first the sex parties those were spaces where it was a lot easier to 
have experiences with women where it was kind of the expectation was like women play with other women a lot of times for benefit of the male gaze which was confusing but for me it was like oh yes this is awesome like this is such a easy way to like gain more confidence in my ability to make a woman feel good also in just the fact that this is really a real thing for me but I didn't want to lose my virginity to like an anonymous person, woman at a sex party. I was kind of waiting for someone special and then I meet Miranda in the book and she was that person for me and and that was just an amazing experience to realize, oh, I could have feelings for a woman and and enjoy experiences with her alone without men present and just sort of untangle that. But I definitely have still felt a lot of, even despite all that and having had other experiences since, a lot of imposter syndrome because my most serious long-term relationships have still been with cis men. And it wasn't until I read Jen Winston's book, Greedy, and became friends with her. And, you know, that book is a lot about what bisexuality actually means and the kind of history behind it and all these feelings I saw echoed of my own experience and and, um, fears and ways I invalidated myself or ways the both straight and queer community had invalidated me that I was like, oh yeah, okay. And she kind of encouraged me to own the label more. And I found that since I have, it's just been like a huge weight lifted of of feeling like I'm not lying to myself or other people. And and she talks about how bisexuality is often thought of as a verb instead of an an identity. So um, there as if there's this sort of like you have to have an enough homosexual relationships or experiences to like prove it's real in a way that we don't usually demand that of people who are you know gay or straight and I also just learned in researching the book how bisexual women have the highest rates of sexual assault drug abuse eating disorders and mental illness more than gay or straight populations and you really see that mirrored in my story and um that also yeah, it was sad to realize and also gave me some sort of reason to own the label more proudly because I think that, yeah, there's just something that really, unfortunately, people take advantage of when you're a woman who's not easily put in one of these boxes and also just a way in which it can be very damaging psychologically when it's so easy to hide within straightness, but you know there's this side of yourself that you're sort of not living the truth of or not allowing yourself to explore or kind of gaslighting yourself as like it's not even real yeah I think like every bisexual woman in particular feels that yeah we talk about it all the time (laughs) I internalized by failure yeah yeah Yeah. and (laughs) when you said that about how bisexuality is viewed as a verb rather than a noun that's just yeah yeah (laughs) but yeah thank you so much for for touching on that yeah I think we've we've kept you long enough thank you so much (laughs) oh no it's been great thank you and could you tell everyone where they can find your book where they can find you thanks yeah this was a great conversation I appreciate you having me um you can find open where books are sold on at your local bookshop or you know request it if they don't have it in stock and you can also find it anywhere online on on the major retailers or or local ones you can find it and you can find me at rachel krantz on twitter and instagram that's my handle is just my name rachel krantz and that's great i post most of my updates on there so you can keep up with what i'm up to and yeah i just love hearing from people if the book ends up making you feel seen in any way or makes any difference in your life that really helps me to hear so that I just feel like I have this whole army of of love and support around me shielding against any judgment or or hate that comes my way and is always very appreciated but yeah thank you so much thank yeah thank you thank you so much to Rachel for joining us and I hope you guys enjoyed that and if you have any other thoughts about polyamory, any questions, mm-hmm. anything that we didn't touch on about non-monogamy or anything, did she anything? Just let us know. You can find us um, on Instagram <laughs> at Sextras Podcast, 
Facebook, Sextras Podcast, email us, sextraspodcast at gmail.com. Go to our website, www.sextraspodcast.com. We have all our episodes are in categories on our website. Yeah, so you can search by like episodes with guests. We have loads of other amazing guests too. And by like episodes about dating, sex, everything. So definitely go there, check it out. And you can like send us anonymous submissions on there as well. Mm -hmm. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. And yeah, we will see you next week. Bye. You've been listening to Sextras, presented by Honey Jane Wyatt and Maria Jose Hayodatiyi. Produced by Mabel Productions. Thanks.